0: Hello, welcome to the West Side podcast. This is where we'll post some of our audio from our sermons on Sunday, and we're so glad that you're here. West Side's vision is to reconcile people to God through the grace of Jesus step by step. We hope you enjoy, and thanks for tuning in. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at In Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent off two of the disciples with this instruction. Go to the village straight ahead of you. As soon as you enter, you will find tethered there a colt which no one has ridden. Untie it and bring it back. If anyone says to you, why are you doing that? Say, the rabbi needs it, but he will send it back very soon. So they went off and finding a colt tethered out to the street near a gate, they untied it. Some of the bystanders said to them, what do you mean by untying that colt? The answer is, Jesus told them to, and people let them take it. They brought it back, they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloak across his back, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks out on the road, while others spread leafy branches they they had cut from the fields. And everyone around Jesus in front of him or in back of him cried out, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of our God. Blessed is the coming reign of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem, and went into the temple precincts. He inspected everything there, but since it was already late in the afternoon, he went out to Bethany, accompanied by the 12.
1: So our passage this morning that Tyler read for us was from Mark 11, verses one to 11. And of the four gospels, the accounts that we have in the Bible of the life of Jesus here on earth, Mark is the shortest one. And I don't know if you've, you've picked up on this before, but Mark's favorite word is immediately. Because he doesn't have a lot of space, right? So Jesus in the entire book of Mark is racing about the countryside and he's going over here. It's a very action-packed book. And it's been that way for 10 chapters. And here at the beginning of chapter 11, Mark's going to slow down significantly. And he takes six whole chapters to do one week in the life of Jesus. And so that's where we are today, um, the last week of Jesus' life on earth as a human being. So at the time of Jesus, the Jews were under Roman rule. It was not a happy time. They were a little antsy about having some Roman overlords telling them what to do. And they didn't like it. They were God's chosen people, and God had promised them freedom. And they didn't have freedom. They didn't know what to do with this. And as they read their scriptures, what we would call our Old Testament, they saw an image of a Messiah, a coming Savior, A king who would come and rescue them would be from the line of King David, who was the epitome of their favorite king in all of their history. He was going to save them from oppression. He was going to bring freedom. Surely he'd do that by force, right? How else would you overthrow the Romans? This is what everybody thought. And Jesus was there to change their mind. So throughout the book of Mark, Jesus has been teaching a new teaching. His favorite sermon has been, The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now that doesn't sound like anarchy to me. Jesus has been working to change their perspective of what this Messiah is going to do and how he is going to change their lives. At his baptism a voice, from heaven, and a dove came down and pronounced that Jesus was God's beloved son. He drove out demons. He healed people with leprosy. He ate with sinners. He redefined what it meant to observe the Sabbath. He walked on water. He fed hundreds of people with very little food, twice, raised a child from the dead, and he has begun in the chapters right before what we read today to speak more plainly about what it means for his time on earth and that it's coming to an end that he is going to die for them so the timing of our passage is right before the passover the passover was and still is the highlight of the jewish religious calendar and back in the book of exodus we read the story of the people of israel being enslaved and in bondage in Egypt. And there's a lot of parallels you can draw with them being enslaved in bondage in Egypt and their current plight in our passage of being enslaved and in bondage to the Romans. And in the book of Egypt, God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, you gotta let my people go. And Pharaoh says, "Ah, no, I'm good, thanks, you can stay here. And there's a series of plagues, and the very last one is the death of the firstborn. And so God, through Moses, tells his chosen people to kill their chosen animal for dinner, a sheep or a goat, and to paint the doorframe with the blood. And the angel of death would literally pass over their house and save them. And so every year, they were instructed to celebrate the Passover to remember their ancestors' faithfulness, to remember God's faithfulness, to remember their status as God's chosen people, to remember their deliverance, their miraculous deliverance from slavery. And so this is their mindset as they're entering Jerusalem for Passover, and hundreds, maybe thousands of people come from the countryside all around to celebrate deliverance, And who do they see? They see Jesus. And this Jesus guy, he's a little different. Maybe he's our Messiah. Maybe this is the moment. Maybe this is the time. This culmination of the the guy we think is our Messiah and the story of deliverance that we're celebrating, maybe this is the moment. So the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament had prophesied about the coming Messiah. And this is what Zechariah says in Zechariah 9.9. Oh, excellent. I'll read it out loud to you, it's okay. He says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And here's Jesus. What is he doing? He's coming in on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey, He didn't choose a noble steed. He wasn't in a fancy chariot. He's on a donkey as our humble savior. And so the people were excited. They were ready. They're amped and ready to go. They laid out their dusty cloaks on the road. They weren't dusty to start with. They laid out their cloaks on the road in front of him. I've never been to Israel. Um, It looks a little dusty just a little bit. And these are travelers from all over the place. They didn't exactly have a laundromat, but they did not hesitate to take off their outer clothes, spread them on the ground that likely had poop on them because of the foals, the donkeys, the colts, and all the people who are walking around to welcome their king. They were so into this. They were super enthusiastic. They made an ancient red carpet for Jesus to enter Jerusalem on. The lines that they were singing, that they were shouting and proclaiming to Jesus, were from Psalm 118. If you've ever read the whole of Psalm 118, it's a story of God's deliverance in the face of the threat of the enemies. And the enemies are all around, and the guy writing the psalm is declaring that God is going to take care of him, and he's going to render his enemies powerless. And in Psalm 118, he says, the Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us, which is where we get the phrase Hosanna from. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. And then Jesus doesn't do what they thought he was going to do. He doesn't perform up to their expectations. He doesn't... Bring a mighty army and a sword to overthrow the Romans. And I don't want to spoil future sermons for you as you go through Mark, but um, Jesus' popularity has probably peaked at this point and it goes down quickly for him. And I want to caution us, I have a tendency to read the Bible and to read stories of other people and point my fingers at them and say, oh, those people screwed up. Oh, those people didn't do the right thing. Oh, those people didn't trust God. And I really need to turn the finger back on myself and say, I am fairly confident that I have misunderstood Jesus at some point. Maybe on the daily. I have an idea of what Jesus is going to be and what Jesus is going to do and how he's going to guide my life and protect me and those that I love. And then it doesn't happen that way. Have you ever misunderstood Jesus? You don't have to like raise your hand. I'm, I got gotcha. you. I'll, I'll take it. Um, Jesus is, if you really think about it, kind of a, an enigma, a paradox. And people for thousands of years have had a hard time understanding just, just what is, who is Jesus? In the early days of Christianity, the topic of the incarnation was a hot topic, and there was all kinds of misunderstandings, um, miscommunications, flat-out heresies, um, and this, so the early church fathers wrote the Apostles' Creed, they wrote the Nicene Creed, and there was still mis-ideas about Jesus' reality floating around, and they said, you know, we, we can do better. We're, we're going to write something else, and so they came up with the Creed of Chalcedon, which... Honestly, this was the first time I'd read it in in its whole entirety because i would familiar with the other two creeds, but we're going to read a little section from here today. It says, We all with one voice confess our Lord Jesus Christ to be one and the same Son, perfect in divinity and humanity, truly God and truly human, consisting of a rational soul and a body, being of one substance with the Father, in relation to his divinity and of one substance with us in relation to his humanity and is like us in all things apart from sin. He's both. The eternal son of God took on flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And he's both in one body. He's fully God and fully human all at the same time. That's 200 percent. That makes my brain hurt. <laughs> but we see both of these aspects in our passage today about Jesus. So as divine, as God, he is fulfilling the prophecies of the coming Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is our savior and nobody but God can save us. We cannot save ourselves. As a human, as a man, he didn't simply just spirit himself into Jerusalem and be like a magic disappearing trick, which surely God could do, right? He walks a couple miles from where he's staying that night, hangs out with the disciples, and then goes back for a hearty meal and a good night's sleep because he's a person, and he gets hungry and tired. And so he's fully God and fully man, and so as I started thinking about this, I thought the best way to talk about this, to help my brain not hurt so much, um, would be to use a Venn diagram. So I draw a couple circles. We're gonna have you know, school for just a moment. So a Venn diagram shows the relationship between two things. So if I wanted to show the relationship between carrots and mac and cheese, I would put them in each of the circles, and then in the middle we're gonna say the things that are common between carrots and mac and cheese. They're both orange, and they're both yummy. So those are going to be in the middle, right? So now you learned what a Venn diagram is today. Usually, when we think about people and God, our Venn diagram looks very, very different. Our Venn diagram is going to be two completely separate circles, because I'm surely not God, And God's not a created being. We're not going to overlap. But Jesus' Venn diagram becomes then a perfect circle because he is both at the exact same time. He is human and God all together. My brain still hurts that's okay. It is important for our idea, our concept of the incarnation to grasp that God, Jesus is both all at the same time. He was in a real human body. He had a real human soul. He was not a phantom. When he resurrected, he was not an ethereal ghoul. I don't know. He was a person still. He was the same guy. And we can identify with Jesus as human. He gives God a face. He's relatable. He invites the little children to come to him. He perfectly kept the law and died without sin so that we can get his perfect righteousness. And he's, it's also important to grasp that at the same time, he's fully God. I think there's a lot of people that if you ask them today, what was Jesus? They're like, yeah, he was a guy. He lived a long time ago. He said some really cool things. And the... the the fact of his divinity is super critical to understanding what Jesus has done for us. He wasn't created by God. When the spirit came down at his baptism, he didn't somehow assume some God-like qualities. He was God through and through. During his life, he claimed to be God. And if he's not God, I don't want to follow that guy. He was not a created being. Jesus was co-equal with God and present for all eternity. And he he wasn't one or the other. He was both. He was of one substance with the Father in relation to his divinity and one substance with us in relation relation to his humanity. Both and all at the same time. Not either or. So... When Jesus was made flesh, he didn't stop being God. He started being human at the same time. So, why am I talking about this this morning? I have a point, I promise. Um, The incarnation is central to our understanding of the Christian faith. By becoming human, God has dignified humanity beyond us being created in his image. God came down and inhabited a human body and has elevated us to say, Yeah, that one, those, that's really important to me. I love them and I'm willing to do something amazing for them. The Apostle Paul wrote that we've received a spirit of adoption. In our worship this morning, we sung that we get to come to God as our good, good Father. We don't have to go to some place far, far away. We don't have to make a pilgrimage to go find God somewhere. He's right here. Right here. And we can approach God in our church building, in our bed, in our shower, in the car, at school, outside. doesn't matter because he's real and personal and he wants you. He wants your heart. Through the incarnation, Jesus conquered death and sin and we have access to eternal life. Not like a, I get to go to heaven when I die, yes, and right here and now. Remember Jesus' favorite sermon is being, the kingdom of God is at hand. It is here. That's incredible. God is beyond our understanding. God is higher, wider, deeper broader than we can ever ask, think, or imagine. But we can identify with the personhood of Jesus. And you let the little children come to me with a smile on his face, the best smile I bet you'd ever see. And as a man, Jesus gives us an example from his life. And I hear a lot of people talk about Jesus of saying, yeah, Jesus died and rose for us. Yes, and Jesus lived. A long time before he died and rose again. And it's fascinating to me to think about how Jesus stayed in sync with God the Father while he was here on earth. That he engaged in prayer and fasting in times of silence and solitude. Those are my favorite parts of the Bible when the disciples look around like, where'd Jesus go? And he's out on a mountain praying somewhere all by himself. And we would call those the the traditional spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices of having a routine of prayer and fasting, silence and solitude, of ways to stay connected with God on purpose. And so this morning, I, um, I wonder, I wonder how God is calling to you to a more intimate relationship with him. And what would that look like for you? Is there, is there a tug on your heart? Is there a whisper of the Spirit just calling you into some deeper, more intimate relationship with God? Is there a spiritual discipline or a practice that God has been reminding you about or calling to you? I know sometimes when I'm, um, like, you know, we'll take journaling, for example. I'm, I'm a very infrequent journaler, but it seems like every time I read something online, I see the word journaling just jumps out at me. Is that God inviting me to a a deeper way of engaging with His truth? So, is there a spiritual discipline or a spiritual practice that God is inviting for you to start or return to or maintain? And what would that look like for you? We don't serve a God that fits into neat little boxes or circles, and God can regularly blow our minds. And do beyond what we can ever ask or think or imagine. Remember, Jesus is not one or the other, he's both all at the same time. And some things are meant to be binary black and white choices. A lot of times, things of the Spirit are not that cut and dry because God is beyond our way of thinking. And what are we missing of God when we try to boil him down to something that we can put on a bumper sticker? probably missing a lot, a lot, a lot. There are things we are never going to understand until we meet God face to face. And I've got a list of questions. Every time my kids come up to me and ask me a question, I'm like, ah, we're just going to have to put that on the list and ask God when we get there. We've got a list going. The Jews that we read about this morning, they were full of religious zeal and religious piety. They were there to celebrate their high holy days They had a belief in Jesus as their Savior. And then He didn't do what they thought He was going to do. And their beliefs were shaken. And when they were shaken in their beliefs, they lashed out in anger. And I'm wondering if we look at that story and say, oh, that's what they did we're missing the point that this is a we problem. There's a lot of people today going through what's been termed deconstruction, where their image of Jesus and their image of the Bible and their image about what is a church for is been shaken. And they're not finding satisfactory answers. And maybe maybe that's you today. Maybe the things that you've heard The things that you've read, the things you've been told are not working for you. And they don't align with the way that you see and experience the world around you. Maybe the Christian tradition that you were raised in is not embracing of that paradox. And it's hard to know what our foundation should be when that doesn't make sense for us anymore. And so I think about who, when I have those kinds of feelings of, I'm not sure about that, that thing, that that pat answer, that cliche, that trite answer that I've been told all this time. It's not working for me. Do I allow that to shake my belief in Jesus? Do I worship Jesus or do I worship my ideas about Jesus? And when those ideas get shaken, am I shaken? Or do I allow that to take the junk out so I have a more pure view of maybe who God is. If my ideas are off base, am I still able to throw off my cloak in front of the colt and shout Hosanna at the coming king? Or do I walk away from the whole thing? So as I thought about how do I know what's foundational, how do I know what I can let go of, Um, it's been helpful for me to think about, well, what does it really mean to be a Christian? What makes us a Christian? Um, And I have a couple verses that have been helpful for me. In the book of John, um, the apostle John records Jesus as saying, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Period. It doesn't say by this, will everyone know that you are my disciples if you went to seminary? if you have a full and complete understanding of all of theology, if your version of what happens at end times is spot on, that's how we're going to know that you're a disciple. No. He says love. I don't need to know fancy things to go out and love people. I have two teenage boys. We have a rule in our house um, that I actually made on cross-stitch and put in the living room. It says, don't be a jerk. I think that's what Jesus would have said if he lived now. By this will everyone know that you are my disciples. Just don't be a jerk. Guys, come on. The next one is from 1 John, and this is, again, John writing to the early church, and he says, we can be sure that we know God only by keeping the commandments. Everyone who says, I know God and does not keep the commandments is a liar and refuses to admit the truth. But when anyone does obey God's word, God's love comes to perfection in that person. And this is how you know that you are in God. If you say you abide in Christ, you ought to live the same kind of life as Christ. This, if we're not careful in how we read this, we're going to get really close to a works-righteousness. I'm going to earn my way into heaven. I'm going to do all the right things. I'm going to pray and fast and have silence and solitude and study my Bible. And that's how I'm going to earn my right place with God. And I want to be careful. That's not what, what we're saying here. What he is saying is that as God's love comes to perfection in us, it will naturally have an outpouring. I say I love my husband, right? I could say I love him all day long, But what's really meaningful is that love changes me. It changes how I react to him. It changes how I react to other people. It makes a a relationship of fidelity and faithfulness between the two of us. And it's gonna change my behavior as a natural outpouring of that love. So what does it mean to be a Christian? How How do I know if I'm doing the right things? Well, I'm gonna love. Love, obedience, right belief, yes, and right action. We'll have my one circle Venn diagram again: belief and action, so intermixed and so intertwined that we can't possibly pull them apart. I'm curious if, and this is just for your own your own thoughts, that what has been your response when your previously strongly held religious convictions have been shaken? And how have you responded to that? Um, have you allowed it to shake away the debris of all of the, the unhelpful stuff to focus on the gem that is God? Or do you throw the baby out with the bathwater and just walk away? I pray it's the first one. I have one more picture I want to show, and there's a, there's a bullseye diagram. And this has also been helpful to me in thinking about what is important, what is that core, central Um, belief that I'm going to hang on to strongly. And no matter how much shaking happens, I'm not letting go of that. So can I get my circles up? Awesome. So my middle circle probably should be an even smaller circle that says Jesus because he belongs at the middle. But um, we have dogma in the middle circle and then doctrine a little bit bigger and then opinion is the biggest one. So dogma we're going to talk about as being the things that hold all of Christendom together. We're talking Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox and Protestants. That one's us. What do we all have in common? It's a very small list. <laughs> I'm sure you're not shocked. Um, Jesus' incarnation as fully God and fully man, and the reality of the Trinity. We all agree on those things. So those are important to get right. Those are the, uh, what I might call the bare minimum of my belief system. That Jesus was God and man, and the Trinity, co-equal, God, Jesus, Holy Spirit. That's a whole nother paradox we can talk about a different day because that makes my brain hurt too. So doctrine is gonna be our, the foundational teachings of our church and that might be if you go to a church website and you go to About Us and it says, what do we believe? They're gonna have a whole list of things. How do they think about the Bible? How do they think about um, end times? How do they think about all kinds of stuff? Um, and so we have agreed that this is, these are important of our faith life together. This is how we have chosen, how, this is how we've been convicted to read the passages in the Bible to talk about these topics. Um, so something that would fall in the doctrine category might be whether a church practices infant or adult baptism. They, whoever fails on either side of that, they're going to hold it very, very strongly. And that's fine. An opinion is going to be things that don't make it into a church doctrinal statement. Um, but maybe I have a firm belief in whatever that is. So as an example, Terry and I used to go to a church where nobody on the worship team was allowed to drink alcohol. That's not gonna make it onto their what we believe statement on their website, but that was their opinion, and that's how they felt that that was the best way to live um, a a worthy witness in their community. That's fine. If they're wrong, it's not gonna affect them long-term. And as I've thought about these circles, I, I've realized that I have moved a lot of things in that don't belong in. When I was in college group, we were listening to secular music at college group. And I got very bent out of shape inside, I didn't tell anybody. We were, you know, how, how hard is it to put on, you know, like a DC Talk album? We don't have to listen to Matchbox 20. Come on, this is church group. If we can't listen to Jesus music at church group, when can we listen to Jesus music? I, if I approach things that are not foundational to my faith with that level of structure and judginess, <laughs> I'm probably not going to be able to live in the love that God has called me to. And if I have a strongly held belief on one of these topics and you have a different strongly held belief on that topic and I let that get in the way of our relationship with love, probably not living the way that Jesus wants me to live. I'm going to put up some unnecessary barriers there. And so I'm curious if there's things that maybe you've you've put in the wrong circle. I think in our story today, we, what we read was that They had some ideas about what their Messiah was going to be like, and they were wrong in that idea. They had prioritized parts of that that really shouldn't have been prioritized, and they didn't react well to that. I'm wondering what it would look like if we let God come into our hearts and soften some of these categories and really focused on the things that were truly important and maybe held the rest of it in an open hand. So as the band comes back up, I want to leave you with a big question that I've been thinking about lately, and that is, what is the Bible for? Is it a magic answer book that we can just pull it open and and find the one-liner that addresses every one of our modern problems today? Or is it a way for us to get to know God, the living, active, loving God who passionately and relentlessly pursues your heart? how has God been relentlessly pursuing you today? What have you heard from him? And how can you respond to that? So trusted members of our prayer team are going to be over on the side by the prayer team sign. And maybe that's what God is calling you to do is to respond in prayer, to have somebody pray with you, to have somebody talk to you. Perhaps responding to the call of God in song is right for you. Maybe there's something that's in your head right now that you, you just, you want to go back and think about or research or talk to somebody about or take action on. I'm sure Gianna would be fine if we used the white, the yellow papers to jot a note to ourselves. I got a thumbs up. Excellent. God loves you. God is pursuing you and he wants you to love him.